Are you or someone you know struggling to have a child? Be empowered, encouraged, and uplifted by attending St. Louis's largest family building conference, Gateway to Parenthood, Saturday, March 9th, 2019. Meet others who have had to travel similar paths to parenthood. Gain knowledge of available options to parenthood, including advanced treatment technologies, third-party reproduction, embryo adoption, and more. Powerful, inspiring presenters, exhibitors, and your chance to win one of many attendance prizes, including a free IVF treatment. Learn more and register to attend at gatewaytoparenthood.com. And great day to you, and thank you for joining me once again for this edition of Focus on Fertility. Today we're going to be talking about a very important topic for those of you that are whether you're men or female, and that's in regards to nutrition. And specifically today we're talking, though, about nutrition for a healthy pregnancy, and for those of us that may be heading down that path hoping to become pregnant it's also very important. On the guest line today, we have Lily Nichols, who is a registered dietitian and nutritionist and a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author with a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. She has written the best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, and is also the author of Real Food for Pregnancy, and that's what we're going to be covering in some detail today. So thank you, Lily, for joining us today. Appreciate the invite. So the book I've had the pleasure of having uh, for a few weeks now to review, and it's quite in-depth and, and very helpful for those individuals who are heading down the path of trying to become pregnant and become pregnant, and even afterwards, and it's full of information, over 300 pages or thereabouts, including basics, uh, foods that build a healthy baby and vice versa, meal planning tips and recipes, supplementation, pregnancy expectations, exercise toxins, stress, mental health, and even what you call the fourth trimester or postpartum. So it's very impactful. And let's go into looking at some of these topics in more specific and really going kind of with the topic of your book, Real Food. What is real food? Yeah, I'll I'll try to give a short and sweet answer on the real food thing. Uh, I think most people agree that real food it refers to foods that are made with simple ingredients that are as close to nature as possible and not processed in a way that removes nutrients. Um, exactly, you know, specific definitions can vary depending on practitioner, but I think for me that means a well-balanced diet would include, you know, vegetables, fruits, meat, poultry, and or fish and seafood, um, nuts, seeds, legumes, and uh, plenty of healthy fat. And there may be some additions or deletions depending on a person's individual uh, preferences or uh, tolerance to specific foods. So the real food exists probably what you're talking about on the outside, outskirts of the grocery stores, not the middle aisles, correct? Exactly. So how does real food diet approach compare and or differ from traditional recommendations for diet? Because you hear all kinds of different recommendations. So how does this either compare with it or differ? Well, I think in general, most nutrition professionals are recommending unprocessed whole foods. That That is, you know, consistent across the board. The differences end up being a little more subtle. For example, in the uh, macronutrient recommendations, meaning the levels of carbohydrates, fat, and protein. If you follow our government guidelines, they tend to recommend a relatively low-fat and higher-carbohydrate diet. And when it comes to prenatal nutrition, if I take the stance of just looking at 
trying to meet our micronutrient needs from food, meaning getting your vitamins and minerals from food alone, you're going to have trouble meeting those recommendations if your diet doesn't have sufficient amounts of protein and fat because the foods that have lots of protein and fat also have lots of micronutrients in them. Um, that's just one example. There, there are many others um, where I make a comparison of what you know, modern nutrition research has identified as optimal levels of nutrients and where you find those in foods. And sometimes if you strictly follow conventional guidelines to, for example, limit your intake of cholesterol and saturated fat, you might not be getting enough vitamin B12 or enough iron or enough choline, all of which are really important to pregnancy health and also for the brain development of a baby. So that was going to be my next question is, what really is the importance and the benefits of specific micro and macronutrient levels with regards not only to the person that's trying to get pregnant or is pregnant or and even the, the fetus itself? Well, there's numerous ways that nutrition can impact uh, the trajectory of a pregnancy. I mean, whether or not even the pregnancy is successful, um, meaning does not result in miscarriage or fetal loss, uh, avoids uh, issues such as birth defects. So the, the most well-known one is how the B vitamin folate impacts the development of the neural tubes. So a lot of people who are trying to conceive are really cognizant about getting enough folate or folic acid to prevent that. But there's actually a wide array of nutrients that are involved in the folate cycle that play a role in the prevention of neural tube defects, and that includes choline and vitamin B12 and vitamin B6, among some others. Um, So my approach is really to try to meet as many of our nutrient needs from food alone. Let's look at the most nutrient-dense foods as possible and build the diet around that, because even if you have, you know, an uncomplicated pregnancy, there's actually some nutrients that if you optimize your intake of them, you can... uh, help your your baby's metabolic health develop properly, meaning reduce their risk of developing, for example, type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease by the time they reach adulthood. So the effects of nutrition can last a long time, in fact, many generations. And the whole study is called epigenetics and fetal programming, and it's a really, really interesting area of research. Is there a difference in getting your nutrients from food versus supplementation? Sometimes yes and sometimes no. So the thing about getting your nutrients, trying to get most of your nutrients from food that I like to emphasize is that the nutrients in food come synergistically packaged with other complementary nutrients that tend to be involved in the utilization of the other nutrients that are in there. So, for example, um, if you're trying to avoid anemia, okay, which is typically related to low iron, there's actually many nutrients that are involved in the production of red blood cells and the prevention of anemia in addition to iron that are naturally found in a lot of iron-rich foods. And that includes vitamin B12, and vitamin A, which you would find in certain types of animal foods. So if you were trying to get just meet your iron needs from supplement alone, A, it might not be super well absorbed. It depends on the form of iron. But B, you also wouldn't be getting these 
synergistic nutrients along with it that might help with the utilization. Uh, there are other examples that are exceptions to the rule, and I'm certainly not anti-supplementation. I mean, I have a whole chapter on it. I just like to optimize the amount of nutrients we're getting from food alone so that your prenatal vitamin is more of an insurance policy and not a replacement for what you're not getting in your diet. So let's move on to, uh, you know, I've heard these numbers all over the place. Let's talk about carbohydrates or carbs and protein amounts. And we've done a previous podcast related to the ketogenic diet. Um, So what is a really good number that individuals who are trying to become pregnant and who are pregnant should be striving for with regards to carbohydrates, proteins, and such? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and it's kind of a complicated answer. Um, first of all, I, I like to look at um, how we need our micronutrients from food, and if you sort of reverse engineer an optimal prenatal diet or an optimal preconception diet, which is actually very, very similar, by the way, um, then look at where the macronutrients fall. I think that's a little more helpful than taking like a top-down approach. I will say that in terms of um, maximizing micronutrients, a lot of it comes down to the quality of carbohydrates that a person consumes in their diet. So if you emphasize more nutrient-dense, real food, unprocessed sources of carbohydrates versus uh, things made with white flour, for example, or white sugar, you're obviously going to be getting more micronutrients in there than if you go with the processed carbohydrates. So first and foremost, that is most important. Um, But as far as a range, I tend to find, you know, it does vary person to person, but in terms of um, pregnancy, macronutrient carbohydrate ratio, somewhere in the realm of 90 to 150 grams works for most people, unless they're very physically active or have very high energy needs, in which case they might do well with more. When it comes to protein, And protein is just an absolute necessity. I mean, every cell in your body contains protein. And as you can imagine, during pregnancy, you're building a lot of new cells. So uh, as you make this brand new human being. So protein is very important. And there's actually an interesting study from 2015, which ironically was the first ever to directly measure protein needs in pregnancy. And they found that protein needs are actually quite a bit higher in pregnancy than our current guidelines. So this puts optimal protein intake for an average weight woman, which just for this example, I'll say is about 150 pounds um, in the first trimester of about 80 grams of protein a day. And in the latter half of pregnancy, about 100 grams of protein per day at minimum. And what type of foods would you eat to get to those type of levels? So, well, first of all, to, to get the carbohydrate ratios that we're talking about. Um, We're talking lots of non-starchy vegetables, which is usually the green ones, the salad greens, the leafy greens. They're some of the most nutrient dense. There's room for some higher carb foods. They're just not a mainstay in the diet. So you're looking at a plate that's roughly half uh, of non-starchy vegetables, about a quarter coming from uh, some higher carbohydrate foods, starchy foods like sweet potatoes or fruit, for example, and then another quarter coming from um, protein and, and fat. And in terms of protein, you're looking at all of your animal sources of protein, so, you know, meat, poultry, fish, 
um, eggs, cheese, yogurt, also nuts, um, seeds, beans, peas, and legumes. Those are all going to be your richest sources of protein. What about like protein bars? Do you advise for those? I'm not anti-protein bars, but the problem with protein bars and protein shakes, if they start replacing meals or snacks on a relatively frequent basis, is that when you extract protein from the original food source, you leave behind the vitamins and minerals that came with it. You just have pure protein. Depends on the protein bar you're talking about, right? So sometimes there's protein bars that are just nuts and seeds with a little dried fruit, in which case it's it's all real food mixed together. But if you're talking about a protein bar that's, for example, whey protein isolate, then, yeah, you're getting a lot of protein in one place, which is totally fine, but you're not getting the B vitamins and the calcium and the probiotics and the other things that you'd be getting if you were doing dairy in its whole form. So I think they're fine for, you know, uh, if you're in a pinch, it's better to eat something than to eat nothing. But I just like that they don't end up displacing other, other real foods from the diet. What type of sample meals would you recommend? Uh, so somebody's listening now and they're kind of envisioning this plate and, and a, uh, a fourth of it is the protein, a fourth of it is their starchy vegetable, and then the other half is more their leafy green type vegetables. But what kind of meals could you be thinking about right now to kind of give some examples? So one one easy example would be something like a grass-fed beef burger that you do uh, lettuce wrapped. That way you're not getting a whole bunch of refined carbohydrates in the bun with some um, jack cheese and avocado on top and grilled onions. And then your starch would be coming from maybe some roasted sweet potato fries. Or maybe we're talking about a piece of grilled salmon and you have asparagus and cauliflower as your vegetable, and then your carbohydrate at that meal is coming from fruit, maybe a a cup of mixed berries. Um, Breakfast might be a couple of eggs that you scramble with spinach and tomatoes and top it with some uh, cheddar cheese and have an orange on the side. Um, There's many different possible combinations, but I'm I'm always looking at minimum to kind of meet those three needs for those carbs, fat, and protein um, at the meal. And do you have a recommendation on how often uh, someone should be having a meal? Should they fast all day, eat once or twice and get everything together? Should they eat multiple meals throughout the day? Should they just eat the one, two, three, lunch, uh, breakfast, and dinner? What What's your recommendation on that? So it, it really does vary by the person. I will say that most Pregnant women specifically feel better eating smaller, more frequent meals, particularly in the beginning of pregnancy when you're likely to have nausea and food aversions and you're not able to eat large portions all at once. And then towards the end, the baby is pushing up on your stomach and limiting the amount of space you have. So it could be uncomfortable and give you heartburn um, or just that feeling of crazy overfullness to have a giant meal. So just for those reasons alone, I think women feel often feel better doing the small frequent meal thing. Even among people who did well with an intermittent fasting, two meals a day sort of situation previously, um, 
it also can help to balance blood sugar to eat smaller, more frequent meals instead of like load up on a lot of food all at once, although that would depend on what exactly you're eating at your meals. Um, so I really let people, you know, customize it to what works for them, but I like to plant the seed that this is what I have observed in practice. Most people feel better with the smaller frequent meals. So um, sort of be open to switching to that, even if it's just for your pregnancy, um, if your body is giving you the signals that it, it wants more frequent fueling up. Now, what foods should we be avoiding? I know you mentioned kind of in, in, in the sample meal, try to get the, the lettuce wrap versus having a bun. But are there certain other foods out there that really should be kind of the avoidance? Yeah, there's there's a handful of foods that I, I think don't offer much nutritional benefit or maybe could have some risks. So um, excessive amounts of sugar is certainly on my list. We have a lot of, uh, ad, they call them adverse pregnancy outcomes, just like not non-optimal things happening during pregnancy among women who um, consume a large amount of sugar, um, and that includes higher risks of certain pregnancy complications, such as gestational diabetes or preeclampsia. But even more than that, they tend to displace healthier foods. So uh, then you might be risking not getting enough adequate nutrition for your vitamins and minerals that you'd otherwise need. So um, I do recommend keeping sugar at a minimum. I don't expect people to um, cut it out entirely. I mean, even I didn't cut it out entirely during my pregnancy, but to just look at lower sugar alternatives to things that you enjoy as sweets. So, you know, a, a very dark chocolate, like an 80 or 85% cocoa chocolate would be a better option than milk chocolate, for example, because you're just getting a much lower um, proportion of sugar in it. Foods that are high in refined carbohydrates, so usually the ones made from white flour, again, don't offer much nutritional benefit and are just giving you essentially pure starch, which doesn't have great effects on our blood sugar or blood pressure, which is, uh, can be a concern during pregnancy. So certainly switching to the more real food, as I call them, sources of carbohydrates. So like I mentioned, you know, sweet potatoes, for example, they're still pretty high in carbohydrates, but at least you're getting a lot of vitamins and minerals in them as well. Um, another example of a food I recommend avoiding would be uh, trans fats, which are typically made from liquid vegetable oils that have been converted into a solid, uh, such as when they make margarine or shortening. And those are linked to a number of adverse pregnancy outcomes, but one of the most concerning things about them is that they actually can interfere with nutrient transport from the placenta through the umbilical cord to the baby. So that's something that I think is pretty significant, and there's literally no nutritional benefits for trans fat. Virtually every nutritionist, regardless of their school of thought or own personal biases, has no recommendation to consume trans fat, so that's something definitely to avoid. You know, if you're looking for a spread for your toast or for your baked potato, um, certainly real butter is going to be far better than using uh, margarine, hands down. And you mentioned bread. I'm a, I'm a bready. I, you know, it's, it, when I'm doing the keto or the low-carb approach for myself, that's one of my biggest obstacles is passing on the bread. Uh, in fact, uh, yeah. just a recent meal I had, I, we were at the Olive Garden. I, I, I had the salad. I had some soup. 
I even told them, please pass on all those wonderful breadsticks that they usually bring by. But is there something that you would suggest for somebody, maybe like myself, that they really enjoy bread that could be a good replacement? Well, first of all, depending on a person's, uh, certainly being on a ketogenic diet, like you're, there's, there's no room for bread in your macronutrients. Right. So for you specifically, that's something where that's tricky. I mean, there's no room for bread and there's not much room for starchy carbs in terms of a replacement. Um, so for, for you, something like uh, doing a lettuce wrap would be a good option instead of like a regular burger with a bun or a sandwich with bread. Um, it's hard to find like a keto replacement to bread. There, there are some uh, recipes on the internet if you Google keto bread that are usually based on like almond flour and egg mm-hmm. that you could uh, look into to kind of fill the bread void. Uh, but in terms of pregnant women, you know, I'm not necessarily recommending a ketogenic diet per se. It, it does happen to be lower than the conventional recommendations, but I'm not necessarily pushing keto. So there may be room for some bread in the diet, um, depending on a person's own carbohydrate tolerance, meaning if their blood sugar is well-controlled and their weight gain is, is appropriate and all of that, then I don't see a reason to super, super restrict on the carbs. And in that case, you might do just fine with like a, a real sourdough, the ones that are like fermented naturally, you know, the ones where the ingredient is just like whole grain flour, water, and salt that actually tastes sour. Those are actually pretty good and tend to give better blood sugar responses to things like white bread, although it varies person to person, or a sprouted grain bread would be a good option. And then, of course, if you do better on the lower carb side of things, you could always do the things like the lettuce wrap or using like nori seaweed as a wrap. You could do cabbage rolls. I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of getting used to not having bread all the time, which I agree with you is the trickiest part of of low carb. What specific recommendations would you have, if there are anything specific, for those who are listening who are at the stage they're trying to get pregnant, they're trying to overcome their their battle with having struggles getting pregnant, is there anything specifically different that you might recommend for those individuals? I mean, ironically, there's not there's not a lot that's different, but there are certain things that I would emphasize more heavily in the preconception phase. And uh, one of those is to make sure you're eating adequate amounts of food, period, like enough calories. We have a large amount of data um, on things like hypothalamic amenorrhea, people who are are not ovulating and not having a menstrual cycle, um, typically because they're not eating enough food and or over-exercising. So certainly consuming enough food would be helpful. If on the flip side somebody has something like polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS, you might want to look more closely at reducing your insulin levels and improving your insulin resistance preconception, which would be very in line with all the low-carb information we've uh, mentioned here. Uh, I would also say there are specific nutrients that are really important in very early, very early stages of development, which is when some key parts of the brain structure and spinal cord are developing and all the internal organs are forming. This all happens in like about the first eight weeks or so of pregnancy, which may be before people even know they're pregnant. So some of the nutrients most important in that very early stage of development would be folate, choline, 
vitamin B12, vitamin B6, iodine, and DHA. I'm probably leaving some off the list, but those are some of the really big, important ones. So for your folate, you're looking at leafy greens, legumes, avocado, and liver, some of the richest sources. For choline, you're looking at primarily egg yolks. In fact, eggs are the number one source in the diet aside from liver, and most people don't eat much liver. So eggs are very important. I'd recommend a couple eggs per day, actually, um, in the early preconception, early pregnancy time if you can. And then vitamin B12, you're looking at um, animal foods, especially um, beef and bison and uh, dark meat turkey, uh, oysters. And DHA, you're looking at uh, fatty fish and seafood, or if you don't eat much of those, they, they have you know fish oil supplements or algae-based DHA supplements. Uh, the fish and seafood and seaweed would also cover your, your iodine needs as well. So those are some areas to just try to hyper-focus on uh, during the preconception period to really boost your nutrient stores before conception. One of the last questions I wanted to wrap up with was, do you have any concerns with individuals in the preconception or even during con- uh, the pregnancy stages with regards to like sushi and raw seafood? Should that be something they stay away from or do you think that's safe enough to, to continue to have in your diet? You know, it's it's an interesting question because this is something that is so uh, so controversial. And when I looked at the data on this, I found it interesting that in many other countries, raw fish is not uh, off the menu during pregnancy, and in some areas, such as Japan, it's actually condoned and recommended for optimal fetal development. Um, interestingly, if you go to the British Nat- National Health Service website, they say it's usually safe to eat sushi and raw fish when you're pregnant because seafood marketed for human consumption has undergone microbial screening and has also been flash frozen. So it's actually pretty safe, relatively speaking. So I think it's a matter of, A, your comfort level. If it's going to give you anxiety, it's probably not worth eating. Um, B, where you're sourcing it, so making sure that it's really fresh and a reliable, reputable source. And then um, see eating it soon after you purchase. So no leftover sushi, like eat it the day of at the really good uh, sushi restaurant. So I think, I mean, I take a bit, bit of a different stance on the food safety concerns because I like to look at how common it is to actually get sick from specific foods that are typically on these foods to avoid lists. And sushi actually isn't all that high on the list. I mean, in the United States, half of foodborne illness outbreaks are from raw fruits and vegetables, mostly leafy greens and fruits. And we don't have any warnings for pregnant women to not have a spinach salad or to not have pineapple, for example, but you're actually more likely to get sick from that than you are from sushi. So I think we just need to take a real common sense approach and focus more on sourcing, using your nose, trusting the where you're actually purchasing it from, and using general food safety precautions instead of putting a vast array of foods on these do not eat list. And is there anything else you'd like to add uh, as we are ready to conclude? Well, I will say for anyone who's interested in learning more about this whole real food thing and looking a little closer at the evidence on nutrition for pregnancy, 
Um, I do give away the first chapter of Real Food for Pregnancy for free over on my website, lilynicholsrdn.com. So if anyone just wants to get a taste but they don't want to buy, um, that's definitely a place to look. You'll get a, a deeper insight into why I'm so passionate about um, presenting an alternative approach to our, to our nutrition guidelines for pregnancy. And we will have a link to that inside the show notes uh, for you to be able to click on over to. It's a, it's a great website. It has a lot of great content, uh, blog imagery as well. And if you're interested in even maybe picking up the book itself, it is available on Amazon. And is it also in bookstores? Yep, it's also in bookstores, Barnes & Noble, lots of libraries also carry it. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, Lily, it's been a pleasure. I know this is very helpful information for our listeners, and we appreciate you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today and uh, share this information with us. Sure thing. Happy to do it. If you've been trying to start your own family and haven't had success, you're not alone. Millions of people just like you are experiencing the same very personal and painful frustration. Infertility affects men and women equally. The Missouri Center for Reproductive Medicine, MCRM Fertility, can help. MCRM accepts most insurance and you don't need a referral. They offer the most advanced science and technology, including exclusive techniques and the embryoscope. Check them out at mcrmfertility.com. It was simply a pleasure to have nutritionist Lily Nichols join us today to talk about this important topic of nutrition. It's so key and important whether you're trying to conceive, you have now a healthy pregnancy that you're trying to bring about, or if you're a man like myself and trying to live more of a healthy uh, lifestyle as a whole, the fundamental foundation is having good nutrition. And it can be something very difficult to understand. And I think Lily has tried to make it relatively simple to understand this concept, especially with what she refers to as eating with real food. And I would encourage you to visit her website. She has a great website with a blog out there that is updated with useful free information that you can access anytime. Her website is lily, L-I-L-Y, Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-S-R-D-N dot com. And I will have a link to that inside of the show notes on our website at Focus on Fertility. But also on her website, you do have the ability to read that chapter one free of charge of her book that we talked about today, Real Food for Pregnancy. And there is so much more there as well. And we encourage you to follow along with us each and every week as we try to bring about a topic that can assist you along your fertility journey. You can follow us by simply going to iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio Network, iHeartRadio, and on Podcast One, as well as our website, FocusOnFertility.net, where we now have almost 30 episodes available for you to listen into and get caught up on different topics. We've got many more episodes that we are in the process of working on now with topics that should be able to assist you going forward into the new year of 2019. And until we can join up with you the next time, I'm your host, Dale Bader, wishing you the very best on your fertility journey.